and welcome to All Tamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, navigating the rough seas of global politics as we do every other week. Today, we're going to talk about Germany's recent elections and even more importantly, about the implications for Germany and the world at the end of Angela Merkel's 16 years as chancellor of her country, as steward of Europe as we know it, and the equivalent of a superstar in politician terms. We're going to discuss the impact of her departure for her country, for the EU, for the global power structure with our guest, Ramiro Villapadierna, columnist and for major Spanish dailies and a well-known voice about Germany and Central Europe. So, Peter, what's really ironic about this election is that the results are less important than the actual impact of her stepping down. So in a country used to coalitions as a symbol of stability, the narrow victory that the Social Democrat Olaf Scholz won opened the way for several scenarios for governing with a Green Party and a liberal coalition. A little anticlimactic for our episode today, but it also may be months before a government is actually formed. And it's true that Merkel failed a lot about preparing a succession. And it's demonstrated by the Conservative Party, I mean, Laschet's underwhelming run. The right is ready for a power struggle. The parliament is fragmented and bringing to the end the post-war two-party domination of the SPD and CDU. Both of them need to contend with a strengthened Green Party represented by Annalena Baerbock and its significant pull with young Germans. I know this is a disappointment for the young voters, so let's do Thea's take right now. Thea, how do young Germans vote and what are their concerns? Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at the social justice and youth angles. So it's pretty clear that young German voters are predominantly Green Party voters. The Green Party was the most popular among German voters for 18 to 29-year-old, but perhaps even stronger among those who are still too young to cast the ballot. Sometimes they're dubbed the Merkel generation because they've never known a different leader. In surveys overall, voters said climate change and the environment were their top concerns, especially after the devastating floods in July in Germany. And yet, the Green Party finished third in the elections. So a lot of young voters, including some of my German friends I talked to, they're pretty upset and they blame the older generation for ignoring the issues that are facing the world with climate change. And just a few months after the devastating floods in July, and they left nearly 200 people dead. So most voters seem to have forgotten the dangers of climate change, or if they didn't, they certainly didn't show it in the polls. Baerbach, the Green Party leader, ran on a platform that this election is, quote, about the last government that can actively influence the climate crisis, end quote, before it's too late. But it's not too late for the Green Party. I think that they can still join a governing coalition and they can influence decisions. They end the third with nearly 15 percent of the vote. So while people are talking about who's replacing Merkel, I think the more, more interesting angle is the future of German politics, and the Green Party will play a big role in it. What do you think? How important is climate change for politicians these days? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. Thank you, Taya. Look, guys, I think two things strike me as interesting about this election. The first is that everybody has been talking about how this election was such a snooze fest and how boring the two main candidates were and how exciting the candidate of the Greens was, Annalena Baerbock. But she came in third, 
Well, Merkel wasn't that exciting either, and it shows how a country that has a higher quality of life than the United States, higher COVID vaccinations, higher life expectancy, universal health care coverage, lower inequality, lower crime, doesn't actually need exciting candidates. And, I, you know, one of the things that I come out of here wishing is that our candidates would be a lot more boring and that they would be forced to do these coalition negotiations that the Germans are actually doing right now. The second thing that strikes me as really interesting is that beyond Germany, this election actually is going to realign European politics. The New York Times said it well, saying that there's going to be messier politics and weaker leadership in Europe. One of the big questions is, can France's Emmanuel Macron step into the Merkel vacuum? Maybe, but the problem is he's also up for re-election and lacks the gift of consensus building. And beyond Macron, it's hard to think of any other alternative in Europe. Will the values and unity of the EU be able to remain strong in the next couple of years? And that's a great question that we should ask our guests when we get to him, Muni. Peter, we all agree that the impact of German elections go beyond Germany into Europe, but they also impact Europe's realignment beyond the continent. And the risks are plenty. A rising China, a distracted U.S., an ambitious Russia, autocratic leaders within and beyond the Union, defense concerns around the globe. But beyond defense, there are big topics on the table related to global finance, COVID recovery, immigration, political repression, the obvious erosion of democratic values, and then the urgency of tackling climate change. And all of them require strong leadership and efficient action. So how much will this transnational agenda suffer without Merkel? And how much will remain the same? It's a really good time to introduce Ramiro Villapalierna. He's a longstanding analyst on Central Europe, executive director at Instituto Cervantes. He served at the Spanish embassy in Germany and has been a long time Berlin, Vienna, and Prague-based journalist and commentator affiliated with several international media and political institutes. Welcome, Ramiro, to Altamar. It's my pleasure, Muni Peter. Hi. So let's take a long view of September's election results. And what are the takeaways of this turnout, the main impact for the Germans, and of course, a little crystal bar, what happens now and how do these coalition negotiations work? Yeah, well, the only clear thing about the German results is that we won't know for months who the next German leader is, as the parties bargain over a new coalition, which is still right and quite typical. But during that time, the outgoing chancellor will keep minding day-to-day business as a caretaker anyhow. Whoever follows Merkel will have in any event big shoes to fill, since he should bid on both on Merkel's sense, like her statesmanship and crisis management skills, while also making up for her very significant weaknesses, like the lack of a strategic and ambitious vision for Europe. Well, uh, and the, with, with only a difference of 1.6 of turnout among the big uh, center-right and center-left parties who are used to rule Germany alone or together, the political spectrum is wider now and more fragile than ever. This is heralding, let's say, for a return of some ideologies and division after decades of technocracy and consensus. And this should have a certain effect, of course, at home and abroad. And so let's talk about the three candidates, and in particular, brief our listeners about Olaf Scholz, the SPD candidate, who narrowly won. Yeah, three candidates will would like to replace Merkel, the, the Social Democrat winner, Olaf Scholz, as you said, 
the conservative admin Lachette uh, and the green leader Annalena Baerbock. But for some observers, let me say, it's someone else who might end up with most influence. This is the Free Democrat leader Christian Lindner, who as possible finance minister, finance minister in a finance coalition, is seen as a next big player in the global economy. Schultz, he led a past big coalition with Merkel, let's not forget it, and he won the poll as a continuity candidate. Keep in mind that Schultz in his party is seen as a conservative among the social democrats by other more leftist big wigs. So although he was criticized for some financial scandals, his handling of COVID crisis won him much praise and ratings. And also Scholz has become uh, the leading proponent of European reforms, pushing ideas both for employment insurance and banking reforms inside. So we are going to talk about geopolitics a little later. But meanwhile, what are the biggest domestic challenges facing the next German government? And what are the new government's metrics of success inside Germany? Well, the, the, the successor to the admired Chancellor Merkel will face big unresolved problems. Anyhow, Merkel's government has neglected too much nationally and internationally. While Germany has got away with it and the country has been prosperous and stable, no doubt, yet uh, trouble is, is brewing. For example, the German banks are in a very fragile position for such an economic power. Uh, the country needs, needs really meaningful economic reforms and, and for, uh, for example, an overhaul of the tax system and, uh, and over-regulate these services which are a burden for the economy. Um, and the EU, EU can po fiscal policy is also a huge challenge ahead. So, Ramira, I want to ask you about young voters. So, the Green Party ended up positioned third and many young voters helped uh, this party grow. And so my question is, what do you see in the rest of Europe? I mean, is there a push towards more climate-focused agendas for politicians? Hmm. Yes and no. So the, the Greens have fared worse than expected. Let's not forget it. And his young leader was soon questioned as accountability is quite embedded in the German political system. So regarding Europe, as you ask, a climate agenda, it's become, of course, a friendly and winning agenda amongst millennial voters, although more as a trend than as a deep understanding of the real developments. Bear in mind that this very Merkel, so a conservative, decided to shut down overnight nuclear energy. And for example, she distributed big money to help conditioning of private homes and buildings, which is more than Greens could ever have done by themselves. But at the same time, it's been questioned, for example, now whether nuclear energy should actually come back as a less polluting energy solution. So you see, it's not that easy. You know, a lot of people, a lot of commentators around the world, uh, if you read French newspapers, Italian newspapers, everybody was saying how boring and unexciting this election was. And I want you to talk about that a little bit. But there is a, an exciting piece of information that came through in this election, which was the loss of the far right. The far right Alternative for Deutschland went from 13% to 10.5%. And this seems very different from what is happening, at least in the United States. So why did Germans vote against the far right party? Let me say that it was also exciting to see powerful Merkel quietly leaving the floor and also her successor unable to stand to her big boots. And 
as it was also exciting to see the extreme parties, as you said, losing ground to the center, this includes ex-communists also, as well as a nationalist party, as you mentioned, the Alternative for Germany party. What is probably probably right dull in the German politics is, is the absolute priority for stability, and this means not making much blood, but alliances instead. However, it's not to be neglected the fact that the far right has lost their beloved status of main opposition party, which allowed them to speak always immediately after the chancellor in the parliament. And that alternative uh, for Germany, they have exhausted their chances of expanding beyond their strongholds in the East. In any event, their consolidating rule in those uh, regions, in the Eastern post-communist regions, where they reign sovereign together with ex-communists, it shows how much nationalist anger is an identity vote up there, and how little inroads also classic Western parties were capable of achieving in that region in the past decades. And this is still wor worrisome. So you think you think that we've not heard the last of the far right parties in Germany? They're uh, big news is that they are not the main opposition party, and, and this is it's very important. As I said, that that gave them a privilege. Still, it's become the nationalist party of the eastern regions, the the, the post communist uh, regions. Is 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 a protest vote there and. Um, they hold the ban, the, the the flag for for those regions, so um, it's going to like that for a long time unless the the, the standard uh, political parties of the of the West can make inroads in that society. Let me move a little bit to Merkel's leadership style. You know, she's had this understated but effective image of this woman on the stage filling the stage along with what were mostly men, and what are, do you think are some of the traits that helped her stay in power and be so successful as a world leader for so long? And what was her greatest success in Germany, and what was her biggest failure? With Merkel, there's no doubt that a, a lot of, of wishful, wishful thinking when, when, when we watched her, it was also a projection of of ourselves. But to be precise, Merkel entered a world of politics filled with strong men 25 years ago, but her tenure was characterized by the quite but regular purge of those men and finally her building up of a bunker of strong women. So she might be dismissed as a political or just reactive person, but there should be no mistake about her killing instincts. Merkel was, okay, she was a, a understated but clear what what disarmed uh, world leaders and helped her making roads in diplomatic talks she had for example very little ego for herself or she, she could keep it under control at least so and and she could profit also of her modernly image of concern concern for the common good which might also be a projection we we had on her so inside Inside Germany, she had a natural feeling for trends, which made her quite a reactive politician, but didn't make her into a populist, however. 
I would say her greatest, greatest success is probably to have been able to grow to be the leader of the free world in a moment of real scarcity of leaders, as well as to make Germany grow into an economic global powerhouse. Among her failures, you ask, so few meaningful economic reforms were implemented and needed of and quite needed overhaul of the tax system failed, failed to materialize, even if she promised it. Private investments inside the country remain, remain weak and, and, and over-regulated services and bureaucracy remain still a burden for the, for the free enterprise. So her, her ideology, if any, has been termed as progressive neoliberalism, meaning culturally adaptive and in step with the liberal green trends while uh, presiding at the same time over a widening of the gap between rich and poor, no matter how well the economy was pumping. So, yeah, no, it's interesting because a lot uh, there's a lot of comments in Europe about how behind Germany is on some of the technologies that are pretty common in France or in other countries. I mean, Germany seems to be sort of a technologically a couple of steps behind other European countries. Yeah. So um, any, any Spaniard, for example, uh, coming to, to work to Germany in a company, he's immediately surprised as uh, how bad uh, broadband internet is in Germany. Can you imagine that? Germany was producing technology at, at world level and 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 much better cars than any other and you could go on with that, but still the country is is a little, as you put it, uh, technologically behind other uh, other European countries, including Spain. So for it's the the bureaucracy, for example, is is quite classical. It's, in in Spain, you, you can do whatever you want uh, dig digitally online. You can you, you can deal with the with the central administration, the regional administration, or the local administration directly online. You have digital numbers for for everything. You can solve problems. In that that's totally impossible in in Germany. So you're right. It's it's contradictory country. Well, let's look a little beyond Germany. And, and what do you think now happens in Europe uh, in terms of we've lost this uh, strong leader in Germany? There's going to be a long time before a coalition gets put together. The coalition is probably going to be a relatively weak one. And so what, what are the main issues that need to be addressed, particularly to keep European unity? And Who's going to fill those shoes? Is Macron the right guy to fill the shoes? I mean, he's running an election. To, he's, he has to be reelected too. Yeah. So um, that's a, a big question. I would say the two greatest threats in need to be tackled are, are a weakening of the rule of law inside the European Union uh, and a failure of, on the part of Europe to defend its interests in the world stage. And many many EU new legislation is now on the way, uh, which is crucial for the EU's future, such, such as the post-COVID uh, recovery uh, measures, uh, the green and digital transition, and 
migration, asylum policy, asylum policy. So, yeah, it's it's going going to be business as as usual, but not as usual because because we'll miss Merkel. About Macron, you asked if if you ask Macron, he's been already the US <laughs> leader all along. So, uh, but in fact, offering quite often Merkel chances of cooperation and carrying by himself the, the banner of European sovereignty. That's that's still correct. He's, he's in any event, the, the president of the bloc, strongest military power, uh, a nuclear power. Uh, but as a leader, he lacks gravity and authority. So uh, since he's up for re-election in six months and he couldn't he could even be out. He's, he's going to, to try to, to fill the gap. But uh, let, let me propose an, uh, another person. So for me, the, the Italian prime minister instead might be the, the only European leader who's even close to matching Merkel in stature. So Mario Draghi could potentially hold the EU together as he already did in the European Central Bank. In a, in a very difficult moment. So, um, so he, he, he could hold together the EU as Merkel did, and, and he could even push the EU forward as Merkel actually didn't. Uh, what gives Draghi this reminiscent authority of Merkel is in part his technocratic and diplomatic manner, uh, and that both both leaders clearly have had their egos, as I said, under control. So Draghi, as, as, as the big European central banker, did a lot at the time to save the single currency from a collapse and, and to calm the markets. He's, he's trusted by the markets. So this is interesting interesting news for Peter, who was born in, in Rome. So he's happy to hear that about some Italian leadership right now. Yeah. <laughs> Still, you never know with Italy what's going to happen in the next six months. But... Uh, for now, I, I will drag this up in the stakes for, 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 for leading the EU, in my opinion. So, Ramiro, before uh, this podcast, you and I talked about how the Western values in Europe have waned and Europe is increasingly looking east and everyone is pointing to kind of a realignment of Europe after Merkel's departure. Uh, this is happening in a world where China and Russia are making global inroads and the West is kind of shrinking. So what do you see these signs as concerning and where will this trend take us? Yeah, that's um, a failure of Merkel is that the Europeans do not necessarily trust Germany to lead the EU in their interests. So in this world of great power competition, Germany has been seen also as uh, quite egoistic uh, mining their business. So when it comes to geopolitics, Berlin's credibility is, is limited. For example, German policy on China, as you asked, uh, has often been largely informed by national economic interests and not uh, broader geopolitical considerations. Uh, and Merkel, she really compromised her legacy with her unwavering support for the pipeline to Russia, Nord Stream 2. So, for Germany, uh, the, their economy is, is paramount. Uh, so while Berlin likes to present itself as a pioneer of, of a joint European foreign policy, it, it, their partners remain 
quite skeptical. You, know, you you mentioned Nord Stream too. I, I I just wanted to close with by asking you about the German U.S. relationship. You know, in a way, it's potentially these two large economic powers. You know, could do a lot together on a lot of the global issues for climate change, immigration, terrorism, global health, but they are seem to be constantly increasingly positioned against each other on a lot of issues whether it's on germany's relationship with china or germany's relationship with russia so where do you see the u.s german relationship going in a future government post merkel well germany has been portraying itself as as the best friend of of the u.s for half a century no, no matter what the what the Britons said, um, now with the with the recent news of of the AUKUS agreement, for example, it's uh, everything is put into question again. But let's go back to to, to explain that Merkel Merkel's time and Merkel's stature. She 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 was what the what the old Romans said uh, a a big leader. Why? Because because a big leader had power had authority and had gravity so not not many leaders have these three qualities together in diplomacy her approach for of searching for compromises between competing national interests particularly the in the transatlantic uh, relationship uh, not only in in europe is it was it was a major source of of berlin's today positive image uh, outside Germany uh, was capable of, of reducing fears of, of of the past dominance and in 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 the in the continent, but but also in the in the, in the relationship with the with the U.S. Germany is 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 a trusted partner, particularly on on financial and economic issues, as well as, for example, in spreading democracy and the rule of law, but. Uh, this changing so the, the, the about the Atlantic Alliance, of course, it's been weakening much before it was now suddenly shaken by the AUKUS uh, agreement. And in my opinion, this weakening it was probably more due to to President Trump than to Germany's. Uh, how it's going to to be now with uh, with Biden? Well, it's not starting in a very promising way but i trust germany is is quite accommodating and and it's going to beside their their egoistic economic approach always toward china and and toward russia as mentioned already uh, germany is, is going to to be a stronghold of uh, pro-americanism and pro-Atlantic policy in Europe. Ramiro Villapadierna, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. So, Peter, there's something that struck me about this conversation, both within and, and outside of Germany, is the issue of succession. So Merkel has been criticized for not appoint, you know, for not picking the right succession or for not preparing for her departure. And then we also talked about a potential successor in Europe. So Draghi came up as as a as a successor in Europe or as the new face of Western Europe in in the EU, et cetera. But 
what if Europe doesn't need or is not properly positioned to have this new leader. We are kind of obsessed with who's driving who's driving the, 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 the European Union. What if it has to turn into a more collaborative institution and a more collaborative project? I think it's a I think that's a really good point. I, you know, it struck me from Ramiro's quiet delivery, much like the German elections, you know, he was he, he made some very key points. One is that Europe has got to, in particular, Germany has got to start reforming its economy and investing deeper in social infrastructure issues, which he described as things that Merkel just simply didn't deal with and just let them slide by. And so there's a lot to be done yet by a new government. And the other thing that struck me is that we really don't know what this new government is going to be like. I mean, there have been multiple articles in U.S. media about Olaf Scholz, but you know, he he may or may not be the next chancellor. It's not clear with this 1.6 percent difference between them. So, I, I think we have a lot of time to wait and. You know, the supposed fragility of this new government. Yeah, maybe it's fragile, but maybe it's not. And if there's some type of a coalition with the Greens, maybe we will see a much more socially oriented government in Germany. And as far as Europe, I think that there's going to be a power struggle before a new leader or no leader turns up. So the next few months are going to be really interesting, both in Germany and in the EU. Well, we'll wrap it up with that. Thank you for listening. You can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Music.